Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Our reading this morning is Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read the whole thing. So let's listen to the words of John, a uh, beloved disciple and old man uh, at this point, uh, sitting in uh, isolation on an island and towards the end of his life. And he saw something. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet 
were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for reading so well, Ben. I appreciate that. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at the first few chapters of Revelation. And specifically, we'll be looking at kind of this introduction to the book of Revelation, the, where Jesus specifically has in mind some churches that he wants to communicate some things to. Let me ask this question. How many of you would love to know the truth about what's going on in the world today? I mean, apart from the, the narrative of the media, what's being told on social media, how would you just love to know what actually is happening right now, right? How many of us would love to know what is going to happen tomorrow, in the days ahead? How many of us, I mean, not just 2024, but would love to know, hey, what, is, what does my future look like? How many of you would, right? Of course we all do, don't we? We all want to know these things. And so the question is, in our, in our desire to know these things, where do we turn? Who do we ask? What source do we go to? Maybe you have a favorite website. <clears throat> Maybe you have a, a favorite portion of Scripture. Or you have a friend where you always like to kind of hypothesize together. Oh, this is probably what's really happening. This is what may happen in the future. Every time that I drive from my house to this building, I pass by not one, but two psychics. They advertise it outside their building. Psychic. Some offer some supplemental services as well, like palm reading or tarot cards. And both of these psychics that I drive by, one just down here, one in Fairwood, uh, they've been in business for at least as our family has lived in Renton, so coming up on seven years. So clearly, people are going to them. They're paying the money. Why is that? Because they're asking those same questions. What is true today? Some are even saying, what is true about me? I don't even know what's true about me. What is true tomorrow? What may happen? What, how can I prepare for those things? People like psychics are as old as time, and they're found in nearly every culture, maybe named different things. There's another group, though, that's mentioned in the Bible that also reveal what is true today and what is sure to come tomorrow. 
Unlike psychics, they get their information from a different source, and these people are often called in Scripture prophets. We see prophets throughout the Scripture. In fact, we have over a dozen of them that have writings, minor prophets, major prophets, not because of their importance, because of the length that they wrote in the Old Testament. People like psychics are also mentioned in Scripture, but they're not usually mentioned in positive ways. But these prophets hear a direct message from God and then communicate that message to the people. In addition to the prophets, the Bible also has others who, while maybe don't have the label or the title of being a prophet, at one time or another, they also heard a direct message from God and they often share it with others. That is, they deliver a prophecy. Maybe not, I'm not a prophet, but God spoke something to me and I need to share it. Maybe some of you have experienced this. Maybe you had a dream that was more than just a dream. It was God communicating something to you. Maybe you had a word, man, this impression that you just had to share. Maybe for somebody specific or something in general. And you knew it wasn't just your own thoughts that this had to come from God. So this is exactly what has happened to one of Jesus' closest followers and friends from what Ben just read. John got this word from God, and he had to share it. So he wrote it down. And we today still have this prophecy. So Ben just read it from the last book of the Bible. He read this first entire chapter. And I want to give us just kind of a brief introduction. I'm going to move this mic here um, today from Revelation, not Revelations. Some of you have always pluralized it. Um, but what is the book of Revelation and who is John? So just briefly want to share a little bit of context before we get into this together. So first of all, who was John? Well, John was first the son of a fisherman. Bible says that his dad's name was Zebedee. In fact, that's where Jesus found him, fishing with his dad. He had a brother named James who also joined him. John's mother was Salome. She was actually the third woman at Jesus' tomb. This John is the same John who was a disciple of Jesus that often referred to himself in the third person in the gospel account of Jesus as the one who Jesus loved. John is the brother of James, not to be confused with Jesus' brother. And James and John were nicknamed by Jesus as the Sons of Thunder, which I think is a great nickname. Find that in Mark chapter 3. So John walked with Jesus closely, and he eventually wrote an account of Jesus' life, the Gospel of John. And later on, and as he got older, he wrote three letters, or epistles, as we're often called, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Pretty easy to identify there. And again, we see his relationship as Jesus, with Jesus as a close one. And in Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul mentions John as a pillar of the early church. So he's a key leader. People know him. And so John, as um, Ben mentioned, he, when he writes this last letter, this last revelation, um, he's pretty old at this point. And actually, he's been exiled um, to the island of Patmos, which is a Greek island uh, quite a ways off the coast of Greece. 
And it's a, it's a decent-sized island, about 14 miles big, so don't you know, picture some kind of like classic desert island. There's, there's people there. Um, but you can imagine 2,000 years ago, it was even more isolated than it is today. So John was, I, was, was cast out to this island where he writes this, this letter, and we see in the very opening verses the reason that he was exiled to Patmos is because of his faith, because he has continued to preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus, engage with what's happening in the church. And so that's why he's there. One of the questions that's important to ask uh, about the book of Revelation is what style of literature is Revelation? What, what was it written in? Uh, we've talked about this, and those of you that have maybe attended one of our How to Study the Bible classes know that the Bible is not a flat book. It wasn't written in one genre by one person. It was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. It contains prophecy and history and poetry and narrative and letters. What about Revelation? Revelation is a very different type of writing for John. He had, he had written kind of a, a narrative account of Jesus' life in John. He had written letters. Revelation was a, a distinctly kind of Near Eastern Jewish style of writing called apocalyptic literature. Now, we have a whole genre of movies called post-apocalyptic movies, right? I actually really like those kind of movies. Like, the world's crumbled, and how do people survive? Apocalyptic literature is not just about the end. It's a, a style of literature that uses kind of in-your-face illustrations and coded symbolism to tell a prophetic story. If you were to look at Revelation chapter 1, it says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, the word translated as revelation, the original word behind that is the word apocalypsis. So apocalyptic literature it literally means a revelation of some sort. Again, using these kind of cra this crazy, hard to understand sometimes imagery. It was a very common type of literature in Jewish and Christian communities, and it almost always depicted the battle between evil and good suffering and hope. And ultimately, in Christian and Jewish apocalyptic literature, it displayed how God's plans will come to pass, how good will triumph over evil, how we are to hold on to hope in the midst of suffering. So because this isn't a familiar type of literature, especially to us in the Western modern world, it is understandably and unfortunately led to a lot of guesswork about what all that crazy symbolism means. What is the story really about? There have been some very weird movies and very fictional books written to try and mad imagine the prophetic imagery of Revelation coming to pass. I grew up in the 80s uh, and the early 70s when there was a series of movies. I actually looked these up the other day. They're on Amazon Prime. Um, starting with a movie called The Thief in the Night that uh, I remember distinctly was about the rapture, how the church was just going to be whisked away. And it was a scary movie. And it really, I think it gave birth to this kind of post-apocalyptic literature. So people, Christians, have tried to sort out the, the, the imagery and the symbolism by drawing out these kind of ideas. And so there has been at times a lot of confusion about what it all means. We... Uh, won't be answering that question uh, in a very short amount of time, but we are going to be focusing on 
the first part of Revelation over the next few weeks. So the book of Revelation can really kind of be divided into three parts. First is Jesus' words to seven churches for today. And we see that in the first few chapters. Then Jesus' warnings of hard things to come. That's both in the letters to the churches, but also in most of the book of Revelation. And then thirdly, Jesus' promise of victory and restoration. And so when Jesus shows up to John on the island of Patmos, he says, write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. That really kind of sets the outline for Revelation. What you have seen, what I'm about to show you, what is happening now to the churches and to the culture that day, and what will take place later. So most of you have probably heard and remember about Most of what you have heard and remember about Revelation is probably from the apocalyptic prophecy that starts in chapter 4. But before all that is revealed to John, Jesus starts by giving a personal message to seven churches. And with each of these messages, there's very relevant applications for our church, Sunset Community Church, today. Jesus interprets some of the imagery himself that John has just been seeing in verse 20 says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then Jesus goes on to address each church specifically, both kind of affirming them and in some cases challenging them. So over the next weeks, we're going to look at these letters uh, and why Jesus said what he said to them. And then we're going to ask Jesus, the same Jesus that revealed these things to John, we're going to ask him to speak to our church today. In fact, let's go ahead and do that right now. Let's pray together. Lord, here we are, year 2024. Your church here in Renton. We don't know all the truth about today. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But you do. And we're grateful that we belong to you. So, Lord, would you speak to us as we read these historic letters that you wrote? Would you also speak to us today as your church, as your people? Would you lead us into all truth May we ultimately land in the confidence that we have in you, that even when times are tough, there is still hope. Even when things seem to be falling apart, we know that you are a God who keeps his promises. And we get to enter into that promise of victory and restoration someday. We're grateful for that. So Father, speak. We're listening. Okay, so two questions as we read this. Jesus kind of, he unpacks this illustration. Hey, the the seven lampstands you saw, well, they represent the church and the angels of the church. So the first two questions we might ask is, what are angels? What are angels? I'm not going to get into angelology. We're not going to look at angels in all of Scripture here. But since he says these letters are to be written to the angels and to the church, good to, to ask that question. Uh, Angel literally means messenger in Scripture. 
And so we see how that, that plays out when uh, an angelic being, a, a heavenly representative, appears in Scripture. It is almost always with the purpose of delivering a message. Sometimes in Scripture, but not all the time, um, the same word is used for these angelic heavenly beings and just a person that's delivering a message. So uh, when John writes to the angel of a specific church, some people say, well, does that just mean the messenger that would deliver this letter? That could be. It also could very well be that there was for each church a divine messenger or a servant of God that would protect and provide on behalf of the church. When I think about our church, next year, this church will have been around for 75 years. That's not the work of one person, is it? There's been a, a Holy Spirit inspired movement among the people of this church that has been passed down from generation to generation. And so some people even think that maybe angel just represented the spirit of the church that those letters were into. We don't know definitively, but we know that there is something significant about the church and that it is a spirit-driven and protected and guided thing. So then we ask the second question, what is the church? When you hear that Jesus is addressing the church in this time, what imagery pops into your head? What imagery pops into your head when you think about Sunday morning or when you tell a friend or a neighbor that you are a part of a church? Or if you were to invite somebody to church, what do you think they think about when they hear the word church? This is actually going to be a significant part of our processing these letters is asking ourselves, what is the church? And I hope when we say that, we make it a little bit personal. If you are a Christian, if you believe in Jesus and you're part of a church, that when you hear church, it's almost like hearing your last name. So what is the church? Let's look at that this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. This is the very first place that we see the word church in Scripture. Matthew 16, verse 18. So Jesus has just been interacting with some people, and they're wondering who he is. And so Jesus turns to one of his followers and he asks this question. He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The very first time that we hear this word church. The word church, the, the word that if we were sitting there as Jesus spoke this to Peter and we could understand the language that they were speaking in, what we would have heard was the word ecclesia. Ecclesia. Ecclesia is not actually a religious word. We almost use it church exclusively in religious terms today. But ecclesia was a, a pretty common word in the Roman culture. 
It meant someone who is called out. Someone who is called out, ecclesia. But not just called out for nothing. Called out to be a part of something. Usually a gathering or an assembly of some sort. So in some cases in the Roman world, this word could have been used in political terms. You're a part of the Senate. You're called out and you're a part of this thing. It is uh, a word that is both individual and corporate, or we would say congregational. So it has both meanings to it. The key designation here, what differentiates church in this context from the cultural context that it was written in, is when Jesus says, my church, my church. So immediately that makes it distinct from any other gathering, any other assembly, any other calling out in that time. And so when we today place our faith in Jesus, we are called out of something and we are called into something. Called out of something and called into. So it is, do you see how it is both an individual thing and a corporate thing? It is a both and. It is not just one or just the other. It is a called out and called into thing. So with this in mind, the church has always been two things. The church has always been universal. And it's always been local. Let me explain that. First, the church is universal. We could say, we call this capital C church. Big C church. So when you belong to Jesus, when you've been called out of your old ways and you've you've placed your faith in Jesus, you are now part of this universal family, this global family. It's kind of like for those of you that are big sports fans and you see another fan somewhere else around the world, you go, hey, hey, we're a part of this thing together. I don't know you. Uh, We've never met before, but there is a common bond for us, a common allegiance and values, even language that brings us together. And so when we say yes to Jesus, if if you're on a remote island and you have this revelation, you give your faith to Jesus, you are now part of the church. You're called out. This is often why we pray for other churches in our city. We try and make a regular habit of that. Why is that? Because we're all part of the same team. We may meet in different buildings. We may play different music. We may clap better or worse than some churches. I know some of you, it's, kinda, it's hard to sing and clap. It's okay. <laughs> but we're all in it together. I'm blessed once a month I meet with Um, local pastors here in Renton. And you know what we do? We pray for each other. We celebrate what's going on in each other's churches. We lament when things are difficult and challenging. So we're all in it together, the big C church. So it is a universal thing, but it is also a local thing. So we could say little c, lowercase c. I have actually been to places where there is no church at all, or maybe there is one church. I've shared this story before, but I remember I was in the mountains in Nepal, and we were with a pastor who traveled between these little mountain towns, and he said, hey, let's meet with the church this afternoon. And so we met with the church in Jomsom, Nepal, at 9,000 feet up in the mountains, in the Annapurna mountain range. And that church had four people. 
There was no bistro. There was no stage with musicians. There was no greeting team or kids' ministry. There was four people that came into a very simple building, and we sang songs together. We opened God's word together. That's the church in Jomsom, Nepal. So the, the church has always been universal, but it is always has a local expression. As people gave their faith to Jesus, they began to gather together. The assembly of the church. So the idea of a, of a church as a building is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Um, we, I try and intentionally, I'm a pastor, my kids grown up in the church, but I try and intentionally say on Sunday morning, we're going to gather with the church tomorrow. Not going to church, we're going to gather with the church. If this building, heaven forbid, burnt down, the church would not cease to exist. You know that, right? Unless we're all in it, but that's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> that's why during COVID, when people had said, you, you know, why are people shutting down the church? I'm like, they're not shutting down the church. It's just not meeting for a period of time. The church is still, still exists. So the idea of church as a building is nowhere to be found in the Bible. But, let me clarify this, neither is the idea of a faith that is disconnected from the regular gathering with other believers. Tony Evans, Pastor Tony Evans in Dallas says this. He says, I hear people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And they are absolutely right. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. You also don't have to go home to be married. But stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. So every, every church is, every believer is to be a part of both the universal church and to be a part of the local church. And every expression of the local church is influenced by culture. Say that one more time. Every expression of church is influenced by culture. That doesn't mean that our theology is influenced by culture, although sometimes that's true. That doesn't mean our worship is influenced by culture. Sometimes that can be true too. What I mean is the way that we gather, the way that we walk out this local church expression has, is influenced by the culture we live in. Did you know that the very early members of the church, they met in the temple courts? That's where they would meet. Acts chapter 2, verse 47 talks about that. As these were, okay, let's, let's gather together. Let's worship together. Let's, let's talk about Jesus together. Where should we do it? Well, let's do it in the same place that we did it when we were Jewish, Jews, before we accepted Jesus. Let's meet in the temple courts. And so they would meet in the temple courts. If they didn't live in Jerusalem where the temple was, then they met in people's homes. Eventually, as they outgrew those homes, they began to meet in bigger spaces. In fact, if you... In some cases, if a church had a wealthy business person that maybe owned a warehouse downtown where they'd put food supplies in, then they would meet in the warehouse. I thought it was interesting over the years as churches began to do that, right? And people were like, oh, churches, that's not a church. A church meeting, an old Walmart building, that's ridiculous. Actually, it's pretty biblical. Pretty biblical. Wherever they could fit, wherever they could gather, that's where they would meet. So, where churches gather is not that important. 
But churches are influenced by their culture. All around the world, culture influences where and how people gather. Again, I've been in Jomsom, Nepal. I've also been in China, where there's an official government-sanctioned church, and then there's millions and millions of believers that are meeting secretly, meeting in each other's homes, meeting in secret places, literally, in some cases, meeting in caves where they could gather to worship together. Why is that? Because they're being influenced by the culture. That's the only safe place that they can do that to try and avoid persecution. Here in the United States, the church is influenced by culture, isn't it? We have big buildings with gyms and cafes. We have lots of programs that we can offer. We get to do things not just on Sunday, but we do them throughout the week. We can do kind of whatever we want. We have a community garden across the street. We have an after-school program downstairs. We can do that because our culture allows us to do some of those things. You can't do that in China. You can't do that in Nepal. And so that's what I mean when I say the church is influenced by the culture. Some for good, some not for good. And so as Christians, we're also influenced by the culture, aren't we? How we view church, what we expect from church. And sometimes we disassociate. We say the church as if it's this outside thing that we don't belong to. Oh, the church is dot, dot, dot. Or I'm looking for a church that dot, dot, dot. Wait a second, are you a Christian? Are you not part of the church? We, we should ask those questions more often, shouldn't we? Because why? The church is influenced by the culture. And the culture says, what do you want? How do you want it? That's what you should get. Can you imagine if we lived, if Renton right now, there was one church just one. And it was actually not very popular to go to church and actually maybe a little bit dangerous to go to church. How might that affect the way that we view our participation in the local body? So we can be honest that culture influences the church and how we view the church. There is some imagery that Scripture uses too that I think is important for us to keep in mind. I'll just share a few of them briefly. Imagery of the church in Scripture, it's like a body. 1 Corinthians says that we're, we all have a part to play. Some of us are like a hand, some are an eye. Like we, Together, we're this beautiful body that's thriving. Christ is the head. The church is like a family. We're all called into it like adopted kids. We belong together in this family. I grew up uh, with hippie parents. And everybody in my church called each other brother and sister. Not bro, like the cool way we say it now, but like, hey, brother, how's it going? Hey, sister. It was almost creepy sometimes when I think about it. But (laughs) the roots of that were based in this idea that we're all a family. Scripture does use a building to denote the church, but in a spiritual sense. So we're a spiritual house being built up with Christ as the cornerstone, the foundation of the house. We are a royal priesthood. Guess what? I hold no more favor as a pastor with God than you do. We're all in it together. We all have equal access to God. A royal priesthood. Whether you're a pope or you're a believer that just got saved and is still wrestling with addictions, you are, in God's family, a priest. Somebody has equal access, equal ability to worship without shame or barrier. 
So these are some of, the, some of the imagery of the church. And so with all this in mind, we see from the beginning that the church was built on relationship with Jesus and relationship with others. The church has purpose and intention. It's a place where we are to grow in our faith. And this growth includes joy and heartache. In fact, if you're looking for a place not to get offended, the church is probably not the place for you. Uh, Most churches probably don't put that as their mission statement. Sunset Community Church, come and be offended. Um, But the reality is, is we're growing together, very different people that would not normally associate with each other, except for what Jesus called us out, and they called us in. As we gather together, we're gonna we're gonna hurt each other's feelings. There's gonna be conflict. There's gonna be challenges. But that is actually part of how we grow. Hebrews ten twenty four says, "Don't stop meeting together." So that was a problem back then too. <laughs> but keep meeting together and spur one another on. Think of like a horse getting kicked to love and good deeds. We all need that, don't we? Hey, come on, let's go. We're in this together. Keep following Jesus. So the purpose, the church has purpose and intention. The church has organization and leadership and mission. Because why? Because it has purpose and intention. And again, we see this in scripture laid out. There's people as part of the body that are called to do various things. And we're all called to be on mission together. The church is Jesus' plan A for getting his good news out to the world. There's no plan B. Jesus said, my church, the gates of hell will not stand against it. It is through his church that his message goes out. And then one last thought is, the church is not less than the regular gathering of people, what we do on Sunday. Otherwise, you can't call it the church because that's the definition of it is an assembly of people. So it's not less than the regular gathering of its people, but it is certainly more than Sunday morning. And hear me out on this. Not minimizing the importance of gathering. This is important. But we can easily come in, check a box, and go out. And not be a part of anything purposeful or intentional or relational. And so we want to be that kind of church. We value our weekly family reunion But just as much we understand that we're a part of something much more important. We're the church when we gather, and we're the church when we scatter. So in the upcoming weeks, let me encourage you to to listen up to what we're about to read together and to lean in as we revisit these letters that Jesus wrote to churches that actually aren't that much different than us. There's some timeless truth in the words that Jesus shares. And as we close this morning, our gathering, let's be reminded, let's be reminded of the power and the authority that set this whole thing called the church in motion. We'll end with these verses that Ben read just a few minutes ago. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death 
and Hades. This is the good news of Jesus. He alone has authority over death, and it is only through him that we can be fear or free from the fear that it brings. Death couldn't hold Jesus, and so it can't hold those who belong to him, us, his church. Amen? This is the good news that we hold on to. Let's end with a time of reflection. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. Who do you belong to? What have you been called out from and called out to? I'm going to read this one more time. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. Lord, this morning we thank you for the the reminder of this, that the fears that we have, the unknowns that we're wrestling with about today and tomorrow, we don't have to be afraid because we've been called out from that fear and called into relationship with you, that we can rest. The one who has power over death and hell has invited us to live with him forever and ever and ever. And so as your church, Father, we seek you now. We ask you to strip away the cultural things that have influenced us in wrong thinking about who you are and who the church is. Would you reorient us in this season, Lord God, the beginning of 2024? Refresh our souls, Lord. Speak to us. Give us dreams, visions. May we read your word in a way that it impacts us in ways we've never understood before. Wow, I've read this, but now look. May you prophesy, Lord God, through us. Reveal to us your will and your goodness. And Lord, for those that have not been called out, or at least not responded to that call, may this be the year. May this be the time. I say yes to you. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.